Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. transition really that well from what we just did. That was wonderful. Thank you. My assumption is some of you wanted to cry out, but you were afraid to. You were maybe worried about what people may think, or just you just lacked the courage to do so. My encouragement would be to go to the Lord. Cry out to Him. Like we studied back in Habakkuk, he says, bring your complaining to Him, because ultimately, if you are His child, He will turn that complaining into His worship. And so I'd encourage you to do that. That was wonderful. Thank you, John, and guys leading us through that. Have you ever had that moment where you're telling a story about something or you, you heard about something, something big, something that was like newsworthy, but not necessarily on the news, but you were telling this story and you're like, and then I heard this and I heard this and, and people are kind of hanging on every word that you're telling. And then all of a sudden someone walks up and says, oh yeah, I was there. You ever had that moment where you're like, you realize in that moment, no matter what you've heard or what you know, it's not that you don't have any value, but the person that just walked in that it was in the room is like the person to worth, worth listening to at that moment. So they might say, well, I know you said this, but this is how it really happened. And this is how it really happened. And so you, we all know that like eyewitness is kind of that thing, even though there's all sorts of science that's proven that our eyes can do weird things. And as we look back on, on history, we can add our own kind of viewpoint into what's happening. But eyewitnesses are really, really valuable when understanding things. In place of that, in, in, on top of that, is this is a story about an individual or two individuals that's happening. And this place is going on and people are, are talking about it. If the eyewitness then knows those people, spent time with those people, that adds that much more validity to their statements. Because like, no, 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 I know, I know so-and-so. And when they said that, you don't understand the history in their life. The reason why they said that, it's such a big deal because of, and I liken this to the way that I feel like every now and then as a pastor, one of the joys is you get a lens into people's lives that others don't. And so when you see the gospel move in someone's life and people are like, oh yeah, that's neat. It's like, no, if you knew what God had to do to get them to this spot, it's amazing how much more powerful that is. We're, we're moving into the Gospel of John, and it's written by John, who was one of the apostles. This is John who, who spent a lot of time with Jesus. He spent every moment, I mean, there's a few separate, but all the moments. He knew how Jesus took his coffee and his eggs in the morning. Like, he knew exactly how and what Jesus would say. He walked with him. He experienced life with him. He joked with him. He laughed with him. He cried with him. He saw him frustrated with John himself. This is the account we get. We get it not from someone who had heard about it, not from someone who had, had been close in proximity, but someone that was right next to the man, Jesus Christ, walking with him, dare I say at times, hand in hand. This is the man that knew him well and walked with him. If we didn't have this book, there are things that would be really hard for us to understand, things that we would not see in Scripture. John is the only gospel that has Jesus making the pronouncement, truly, truly, or amen, amen. 
This statement is meant to be what I've said is true. It Let it be so. When put on the front of a sentence, it's saying what I'm about to say, I have the confidence, the power, and the, and the position to say that what I'm saying is true. Putting it twice makes it that much more profound. This is the only book that does this with Jesus. In John's gospel, we don't see Jesus perform an exorcism. Whereas in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, we see that over and over and over again. Jesus teaches in long discourses in John instead of parables, where we see the parables in this, the other gospels. The prologue describing Jesus' preexistence, what we're going to get into next week, and the incarnation, all of John 1, that is not present in any of the other gospels. The encounters with Nicodemus, John 3, and the Samaritan woman, John 4, as, as well as the washing of the disciples' feet, John 13. The post-resurrection appearance to Mary Magdalene alone, John 20. There are many more examples of John's unique lens and perspective that he shares with us through this book. One being massive is the promise of the coming Holy Spirit, John 14 through 16. We don't get that in the Synoptic Gospels. The I am statements at the end, the, the place where Jesus says he presents himself as the good shepherd, as he takes the name of God, as the high priestly prayer. All of these things are what we get in the gospel of John. It's a beautiful book. Most scholars put the timeline writing about 80 to 90 AD. It could be as early as 70, as late as 96, 98 AD. But most say it's in that 80 to 90 AD, years after he spent time with Jesus. At this point, John is an old man. Old man John. We get to sit kind of by the fire and listen to John and, and let him tell the stories of what it was like to, to walk with Jesus. Hang on every single word that he tells. This gospel was written about 10 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So those have been circulating, have been working their way around John in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, is where he's writing this, to the churches that we see him bring back up in Revelation, where he wrote that late 90s AD. One of the arguments or the statements that one theologian kind of just threw out a conjecture is the reason why it took them so long to write the Gospels because they believed Jesus was coming back right away. So then they spent the 10 years, and then they, Matthew, Mark, and Luke circulate for a while, and then John comes in to settle some stuff settle some stuff for some people that were struggling to understand who Jesus really was. Was he truly God? Was he really the son of God? Did he have all the power? What, what does exactly this mean? What does the death and resurrection mean for me today? How do, I, how do I move forward? This book is beautiful. Really, the primary focus of the book is twofold. John does something for us really interestingly. He, he takes all the suspense out as he's writing. He'll say things like, he said that because, and he'll give us the context as to why he said that. He even tells us in the book the purpose, John 20, verse 31. But these are written, all the things that are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He has an apologetic purpose, that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he has evangelistic purpose, that by believing, you may experience life. This book is beautiful. In this book, John presents Jesus as the eternal word, the Messiah, and the Son of God. Through his death and resurrection, brings this gift of salvation to mankind. This book, let's be honest, starts really, really hot. It comes out in the beginning. 
This book skips out all the genealogy, skips out all the birth of, of Jesus and all that stuff, just kind of leaves that and says, hey, that's been talked about, that's circulated, we know it. I want to get to you really quickly. And he just comes out hot, like you jumped on a moving train that had been running for a very long time. He actually lets you in the beginning kind of hear the end of the book and then just keeps driving and driving and driving and spends immense time talking about himself being the living bread, the living water. He comes out hot. God has worked through people to create inspired works when we look at the scriptures. The Bible is not written by people on their own. Instead, the Holy Spirit used the intellect and literacy of people that God chose to put this together for us. So when John's penning these things, he's doing so inspired by the Holy Spirit, not just as a man that has walked with Jesus. Human circumstances can bring these truths out. Most, if not all, revelation of Scripture can be found in what the author meant by what they were saying in that time. John 14 tells us, teaches us, that the Spirit of God is who teaches us the truth of Scripture, but is often through seeking to understand what the author of a letter or a book had in mind that we find the plain, literal meaning of the text. And the Holy Spirit intends for us to know through what the inspired author meant in writing. It's important for us to understand those things. It adds context. And I'm going to go there in just a second. There's a few facts on John. Who is this John man? He's at the cross. This is the John that Jesus looks down and says, take care of Mary. He puts his mother into the care of John. That's something that we would say like, oh, that's nice. Take care of him while I'm gone. No, this is, you are responsible for this woman. He was the younger of two sons of Zebedee. James is almost always mentioned first, so that's why we assume that it's James and John. James is the older of the two. They were profitable fishermen. They did really, really well. Some assume they were financially well off. We see that out of Mark 1.20. John's mother was Salome, Mark 15.40. There's some consideration out of John, uh, John, where is it, John 1.37, that Salome was a, a, a sister to Mary, Jesus' mother. We don't know that for sure. John was named an apostle in Matthew 10. John left John the Baptist after John the Baptist had baptized Jesus and started following Jesus in that moment. Spent some time with him before we even pick up to understanding when he was called by Jesus and then went back to fishing. But John left John the Baptist because he says, look, I must decrease, he must increase. John's like, I'm going after him. He was named an apostle, Matthew 10, 22. He was a permanent disciple of Jesus. He's at Matthew chapter four. With James and Peter, he was one of the inner circle where we see him experience the transfiguration in these moments in the Garden of Gethsemane, these moments where he, Jesus brings these three disciples out and says, no, I want you three with me. One of the things I love about John is he had just, a, a, although we would today, most people, if you're spending around the church, you're like, John's kind of the hippie gospel of love, right? He's just like a soft man and just, he probably wears a lot of like, you know, pinks and like he just, he just seems kind of calm, right? And he's this person. But what we forget is he had a fiery, fiery personality. In fact, Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder, Luke 9, 54, where Samaria were not responsive to the message of Jesus. They just weren't listening to Jesus. And John's like, shall we call fire down from heaven and burn them up, Jesus? This is the personality of John. And Jesus rebukes him. He says, no, you don't understand what you're doing. 
This is the same person that right after Jesus spends time talking about how he's going to be mocked and spit upon and scourged and ultimately killed, James and John blurt out, hey, grant us that we may sit by, on either side of you, on your right or your left. Like, talk about bad timing. That's like finding out that one of your family members terminal and saying, hey, can I have this in your house? They lacked common sense. They said what they thought. They just spoke out. I don't know anyone like that. After the ascension of Jesus, he became one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. We see that in Acts 1 and 3. Yet today, we know John as the apostle of love, the man of love. And it shouldn't be hard for us, if you've experienced Christ in your life, it shouldn't be hard for us to recognize that the, the, the sharp edges around us should be continually softened by the Spirit of God. That coming to know the Lord, everything that we believed before God that had nothing to do with Scripture can be either put to the wayside or put into the context of under the submission of God and His truth. Really, if you think about it, it shouldn't be shocking to us that John was this fiery, fiery person and then ultimately could say in John 13, 23, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. The Greek for that side is in the bosom of Jesus. It's like, whoa, bud. It's a little too intimate. It's getting a little scary here. Come on now. It shouldn't shock us. When, you, when you're confronted by Jesus in your life, the hardness, the, the posture of, of pride, the way that we speak and the things that we do, we realize now have to be filtered not through our own understanding, but the Spirit of God that is dwelling inside of us, submitted to the Scripture of Jesus Christ. So to see John as a fiery person saying, bring fire down from heaven to burn them up, to ultimately resting in the bosom of Jesus and being known as the Apostle of Love is a work not of John, but of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We're going to get into this book, and I promise you it won't be like Matthew where we take six years to get through it, but um, we will work our way through this verse by verse. What I wanted to do with the little bit of time we have left today is talk about something that I think is really, really profound for us and, help, and will hopefully help us understand a context to which we are to look into this book as we are to study into this scripture and move through this uh, ultimately, there are three times in the Gospel of John that we see that John, John 13, 23, 19, 26, and 21, 7, that John defines himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, there's scholars and speculations on a number of things that this may be why he's not the disciple. And there's been some later work done trying to show that he's not the person that wrote this. But most scholars, most theologians believe that the Apostle John, the one that walked with Jesus, is the author of this book. Then there's also a conversation around John saying the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't go around and introduce my wife. This is Jen, and I'm the husband whom she loved, right? Like, that's just not something that we do, right? I don't think many of you would say, introduce me and be like, hey, hey, guys, just so you know, I'm, I'm, I, I go to this church rev, and I'm the person whom the pastor loves, right? Like, you wouldn't, that's not, that's not common language, I hope you believe I love you, most of you. Um, but uh, I think in a lot of ways, that's a really interesting statement. And some theologians believe that it is actually that John believed and wrote, and they agree that there was more love from Jesus to John. 
But the, the scholars that believe that land on the point saying that, that loving someone immensely doesn't mean that they don't love other people of value. It just meant that it went deeper there. And then there are some that just says, no, this is John. He has settled in his heart. He has recognized that he is just loved by Jesus. So I want to ask you a question, and this may feel awkward, but I want you guys to answer this if you're willing. Why don't you raise your hand if you have ever stopped to think about what it means that Jesus is God and that Jesus loves you personally. Have you settled that in your heart? If you, if you can, raise your hand if you believe. Like, now again, not perfectly. Some of you are like, okay, I don't want to be, we don't need false humility. Have you settled in your heart that Jesus is God and that he loves you? Is that settled in your heart? Show me your hand if, if you think that. Okay, now I'm going to do something really bold. Anyone with their hand up, you can answer this next question. You can put your hands down. Anyone, you can yell it out. Anyone feel like this idea has settled? And would you be willing to share what changed in your life when this settled? Would you be willing to share? Just, just call it out. What, what changed when you finally settled on that Jesus is truly God and that he does genuinely love you? Not just in salvation. We, we can all claim that salvation thing, but when you really settle this, what changed for you? Everything. Okay, thank you. That, I need a little bit more than that. That's good, though. You would hope everything. No more self-righteousness. That's great. What else? Attitude. Great. What else? Can't earn his love. That's a good one. What else? Stop trying to prove myself. These are great. What else? Stop needing the love of others. Man, that's awesome. Yes. A feeling of peace. Yes. Realizing how poorly I love others. I love that because when we look at the love that Jesus has, thank you, is, is there anything else that, that's changed for you? You're trusting him right now. Okay, now let me ask a harder question since we started the day with lamenting. When you lose sight of those things, what, what trip-ups do you find yourself doing? Getting really scared. Yes. What else? When you lose sight that Jesus is God and that he genuinely loves you, and again, you wouldn't say I've abandoned ship or I'm having a faith crisis, but just when that becomes less of your focus, what are the pitfalls? What are the things that you see coming out? We could also obviously say the opposite of peace and all those other things, but what, like for you personally, where do you go? Anger. Resent. Yes. Control. Yes. Self-focus. Isn't that interesting? Anything else? I didn't really have any other materials, so you guys got, I'm just kidding, sorry. Here's the thing. John was able to say, and, and I would argue until I'm blue in the face with the utmost confidence that Jesus is God and that he loved him. When you just stop, I, I couldn't do it. Excuse me. <laughs> I tried to read 1st, 2nd, 3rd and John and the Gospel of John with that recollection in my mind and it just was almost too painful to think about. Think about it. John says things, for God so loved the world that he gave his only life. And he walked with the man of Jesus that did this. He spent every day with this man. He loved this man. Yes, this man was God. And he believes that. And you see that all throughout his writings. But there was a close-knit relationship, so close that he would rest his head on the bosom of Jesus at a meal. That has to be painful to say, and not only painful, but also a recollection that can change the entirety of who you are. 
when John says Jesus is the Son of God, look, I've had some pretty, pretty great friends, and I've had some people that are a little fond of me, but I doubt anyone would declare that I am the Son of God. But John says that without doubt, based on his understanding that Jesus is God, and that Jesus genuinely, realistically, uncompartmentalized, loved John unconditionally and showed it by going to the cross even when John abandoned him. This should rock us at the core. John himself says in John 16, 20, verse 20 through 22, truly, truly, there it is again, that what I'm saying is true, right? I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Can you imagine writing that? as the Apostle John, years after he's not been able to walk with Jesus, losing sight of the, the mannerisms and, and trying to recall every moment that he spent with him and the, the jokes that he had and trying to remember the stories. In that moment, he's writing saying, your sorrow will turn to joy. Can you imagine how sweet that felt for him to write? Just to let yourself feel that weight for a moment. How wonderful would these words have been as a man who is experiencing sorrow, hoping that Jesus would have come back a long time ago, as a man that at this point is writing and most of the other disciples have been, or the apostles, have been martyred or are being martyred for Jesus' name. As a man who's about to get exiled to Patmos Island, which is not somewhere you want to go. Imagine when he writes this word, your sorrow will turn into joy and no one will take that joy from you. Think about the list, the two lists that we just said in this room. The drastic difference from an individual that understands and settles in their heart that Jesus is God and that he loves them. What did we hear? Trust and peace and, and, and I don't need other people's loves and all those other things. And what was the opposite? Fear, control. Do you, do you see it, church? This is one of the reasons why I think the, the apostle John is writing this book. To remind people like, hey, hey, don't lose sight. Don't lose sight of who Jesus was. Don't let, take your eyes off of Jesus. Don't look at the storm around you. Don't forget in 2020, Jesus is still king. He's still Lord. He's still Messiah. He's still Savior. And he is still building his church. Don't forget it. Don't lose sight. One of the, the fallacies I think that we miss up is when we look at God's character and his ability to love. When we think of John saying that I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved, many of us think, okay, is, did, did Jesus love him as a friend? Or did he love him as his master? Or did he love him as his savior, as his Lord? Which, which relationship was he loving him in? As, as, like, does God love him as a father? No, when, when we look at God, it's not that God is loving. He is love. That means that every single thing he does, even through the hardships, the suffering, and his wrath, is a representation of his love. We cannot escape his love. And so John isn't wondering if Jesus loved him as a friend. 
I mean, I don't think he, maybe he's, maybe he is. I mean, he did ask the question, can I sit on your right hand? So maybe he has a little bit of that pride in him. He's like, I think I'm, I'm Jesus's best friend. Maybe he walked around with that possibility. But ultimately what, what John had settled is that Jesus loved him. And he, I don't think he compartmentalized it like we do today. See, the problem is when we look at love from God and we look at our circumstances, this is what, what misses. If we don't settle in our heart that God loves us, if this doesn't settle in our heart, then we do the very thing that I think one of the individuals said is we start looking at our self-righteousness and we start trying to earn grace. And we start working through those things because let's be honest, if Jesus is not sovereign, if Jesus is not fully God, then he wasn't the perfect sacrifice. Like Hebrews said, he needs to be sacrificed again because there's more sins for that to happen. If Jesus isn't God, then, then we're in a really big spot because he can't be the perfect sacrifice to take the sins that you and I continue to perpetuate, especially in 2020. But if God doesn't love us, then that'll cause us to, to enter into this relationship with timidity. And that too can cause us to start doing what every other religion on this world does. You have to earn it. You have to perform because when you mess up, how could a good God love me still? Because he sees you through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not based on what you do or don't do. When we lose sight of Jesus as God and him loving us, when we, when we miss this, when there's a disconnect in our heart, one of the things we do is we run to self-righteousness. We run to works-based grace. Because if he's not settled it, if he's not done it, then we, we got to keep going. We got to keep doing it because obviously I don't want to, I don't want to, how many sins, do, what's the one sin too far? We forget and we believe that the work that Jesus did on the cross isn't complete. Another way that we lose sight of this is I think one way that I'm seeing many, many people in the church, myself included from time to time, struggle with when it gets hard. When life gets hard, we lose sight of the fact that God still loves us. See, because we've compartmentalized love. Even though, even though we have scripture that says God disciplines those whom he loves, and although we may suffer for a short time, it's for our benefit, for the good, we have scriptures like that. We have scriptures where Jesus suffered as a model to show us how to suffer. Jesus says things, a servant, a slave is not greater than the master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. We have plenty of scriptures that talk about life is going to be hard. Hey, let's just read the Old Testament and realize just how hard life is. And yet when life gets hard around us, because we haven't settled that God loves us and that Jesus is truly God, you know what we do? We start asking, why God? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And that's a control-based position. That's a pot where you can't sit in confidence of God. Instead, fear runs in and starts dictating you and running you. And you start saying things like, if God is sovereign and in control, then what is this whole pandemic? If God isn't sovereign, is sovereign and control, then why can't I understand what my government is or isn't doing? We start asking why questions that we have no business asking because nothing has changed. God still loves us and he's still sovereign and in control. When he said, I have peace in Jesus. Do, do you think it's slightly comical that, that our peace that surpasses all understanding comes from Jesus Christ? That right after that, right after that he tells you to think on whatever's good and pure and lovely and just, think on those things. Why? Because what will take away our peace? Anxiety and thinking on the things of this world. That's so why he says, do not be anxious in anything. 
in Philippians. When we lose sight of who Jesus is and how much he loves us, we, we lose sight of what it means to walk with the Lord. We start justifying. You want to know one of the things we do? We start justifying going outside of Scripture and looking to this world for answers instead. Because we can't find him in here because it's not complete. Because what we've read in here doesn't settle in our heart that Jesus is God and that he loves us. These hardships around me, there's no way. Why am I going through so much hardship? There's no way that Jesus can truly still love me. And I feel like he's up there saying, oh, oh, Brent. Oh, buddy. Oh, buddy, I already showed you how much I love you when I went to the cross. You want, you want to see more than that? Who's loved you beyond that? Who can display that kind of love to you? No one can. When you said that, that I don't need other people's love, right, because you're settled that you could not be any more loved. And the love of anyone else is just beautiful. We talk about compartmentalizing love. This same author, John, says you cannot love God and hate your brother. So what he's saying there, obviously, is around a lot of things of hating your brother. You can go read all of that. That's in 1 John. But the other aspect of it is that God doesn't hate us and love us. God loves us. He doesn't compartmentalize it. And I may in a moment of my own sanctification journey as Jesus is finishing what he completed, a promise that I hope we can settle on because it's not made by just a man, it's made by God himself. I may in a moment feel, man, this just does not feel loving. And it's at those moments when God can say, Brent, that's because discipline is always painful. In the moment, it's always painful. And I may feel like, man, it's really hard right now, God. I don't, I don't feel like you're loving me. He said, yeah, because right now I'm loving you as your master. The way that you need to be loved right now is you need to understand that you are a bondservant to me and there are things that need to be cut away. Otherwise, I'm not gonna keep my promise of completing what I began in you. This is what the gospel of John does for us. It answers these questions through stories of John sharing firsthand account. I was there. I stood there. I smelt the smells. I remember the fish. I remember the fear I felt on that boat while we were rowing. All of those instances, I remember. I reached into that basket and kept pulling out bread and fish that didn't have any. What is going on? Like I experienced this Jesus, and he's telling us over and over again, he is God. He is the Son of God. He is the Most High King. He is our Savior. Don't lose sight of it. And the church at this time was losing sight of it. It's almost like old man John comes and says, all right, I'm going to go ahead and settle this right now. There's some silly things being perpetuated around this church. This isn't going to work here, people. Let me go ahead and just give me the pen right now. Come on, give me the pen. I'm going to write this down. I'm going to show him. It's almost like that son of thunder came out in him. How dare you speak poorly of my God? How dare you lose sight of what Jesus did for us? Don't you remember I remember the pit in my stomach when I ran from him while he was arrested. I remember the fight that we had in the upper room afterwards, complaining and, not, and so lost, the, the lost, the hopelessness we felt. How dare we lose sight because he walked out of that tomb and I walked with him and I saw him resurrected. That's what we get out of the gospel, John. I pray, I plead that these would just not be historical words, but instead they would just live in your heart. Your heart would beat faster when you get into it. You'd find yourself more and more enamored with this Jesus loves me. No matter what I did last night or last week or how many times I've done it, or I said I wouldn't do it again. He loves me and he is God. 
and he's in control. And despite what everything else is going to show me, I can settle this in my heart. I can settle it deep in my heart, knowing at the bottom of everything that I do not have to fear anything but God. I do not have to worry about peace because it's found in Jesus Christ and it's mine in him. I do not have to worry about whether or not Jesus is in control or God was like, oh my goodness, I totally forgot to watch Boise. I, I lost sight of what would happen in 2020. Like Jesus, this is Jesus' sabbatical year or something. Like he's just off, off, off duty right now. No, Jesus is daily, hourly, every minute interceding on individual believers' behalf before the Lord, saying, look at me, their advocate. He's praying for you right now. Only Jesus, who is fully God, could pray for every single one of us in this room and every single believer in this world at the exact same time. We can't even comprehend it. And only that Jesus can do that while still loving us perfectly. When you lose sight of that, you start thinking that God messed up. Essentially, what you're trying to say is that I want to be God. Jesus, you, you, you almost had it. You did really good. We got a lot of good accounts in here. I love, I love this stuff. But, the proverbial but. But you just couldn't do this. I know what your scripture says, but I'm going to go outside of it. We're going to have to settle that. Think about this. In the beginning, the word became flesh. So when we choose to go outside of this, we're walking outside of Jesus. So be really clear on that. When you hear what the gospel compels you to do in 2020 circumstances, and you choose to go outside of this, just know that you're combating Jesus himself, the one who is fully God, and he fully loves you. And here's the best part. Hear me on this. Focus in. Everyone look at me, okay? Even when you do that, he loves you. Even when you mess it up, he loves you. In fact, he says, oh, no, I knew you'd do that. I went to the cross for that. I paid for that. Stop carrying it around and sulking. Let it go. Lay it at the cross, repent of it, and turn to me because I have so much joy that your sorrow will be turned into joy and nothing will take this joy from you, as John says. The band's going to come up and we're going to sing one last song together in worship. We started this service with, with worship and giving you a chance to lament. And maybe some of you are not ready to lament. Maybe some of you are like, I can't, I can't do that yet. Or maybe some of you are like, you heard this, and you're like, man, I have forgotten. You, out of your mouth, you uttered the very thing that happens when you forget that Jesus loves you and that he is God. And you realize like, oh, that wasn't some hypothetical as if it was happening at one point. That's what I'm doing right now. Repent of it. Ask for forgiveness. Danny Pellegrini and I will be over at the prayer room if anyone would like to get prayer, we would pray for you. If you're here and you hear this, and this just like stirred in your soul, not because of anything I said, but because you just all of a sudden were reminded again of the goodness of Jesus, then proclaim it loudly. Drop on your face, prostrate yourself before him and say, God, you are God. Forgive me for losing sight of that. And instead of focusing on all the things that are around us, lift your gaze to Jesus and keep it fixed there, knowing that he will turn your sorrow into joy. He will turn our complaining into worship. We pray, Heavenly Father, I can't imagine how amazing it must have been for John to walk with you.
oh, I'm so jealous that he got to do that. But at the same time, I couldn't imagine the pains I'd feel for the ways that I would totally, completely mess it up with you. And so, God, as we dive into the gospel, John, I pray that as we, as we learn as followers of belief, as Jesus that what it means to, to live in your love, God, you'd grow us and mature us, and we'd, we'd, we'd see the old self passing away more so. And, God, this would compel us to go and share the good news of Jesus Christ. God, for the individuals that are here today, they're like, I don't know if I've ever settled in my heart that Jesus is God and that he loves me. God, would they surrender their life entirely to you? Would they profess that you are King and Lord and Savior, acknowledge that they are sinners separated from you and they are in need of your grace and your love to stand in holiness before you, covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Jesus, your love for me is overwhelming. In spite of what I do, in spite of my mistakes, in spite of my failures and my shortcomings, and when I keep getting it wrong over and over again, your love covers a multitude of sins. And grace has been lavished on me. God, may we be a church that doesn't get distracted by elections or pandemics or protocols. Would, be a, would we be a church that are just totally taken away, like lost in your love and you being our God? Now, Jesus is fully God. and He was the one that left himself, put on clothes, made himself uncomfortable. Talk about wearing something that we don't like. He had to put on flesh. Completely uncomfortable and inconvenienced to display the love that he has for us, for me. God, would we be lost in that? Will we read your words realizing that these aren't some neat thing for us to look at and pull little tidbits out of, but these are the words to literally guide our life? Would we be a people that can, in our suffering, say what David said, how long, O oh Lord, consider and answer me, knowing full well that, God, you will and you do and that you have not lost track of time in our lives. In fact, you are completely outside of time. We love you, Lord, and I pray that as we worship, as we sing, as we, as we walk throughout this week, God, I pray that the gospel would be what compels us to live, what draws us to one another. And God, I pray that we would do what John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said at the end of this book, through your prayer, that we would be one as you, Jesus, and the Father are one. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue